Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create those products that customers love. When I started this podcast, I created what I called the Product Mastery Roadmap, and that describes the path from product manager to product master. And I've used it as a guide to the topics that we explore here. And recently, I updated it to better reflect the journey that I've seen many of you and your colleagues taking towards mastery, focusing more narrowly on what is most important so you can make progress more quickly. And a pivotal element of this journey is the influence you have in your organization. Influence to get others to support your ideas. We really need that. And recently, a fellow listener expressed this well when I asked him about how this podcast had helped him. He told me that I've helped create a monster, love that phrasing, because he now gets everything he asks for in his company, that he has virtually zero barriers and almost no questions asked. Now that is influence. My guest has a different term for it, which he calls innovation capital. It's a concept he deeply explores in the book he co-authored by the same title, Innovation capital is what you can build up over time that makes it easy for others to support you when you want to do something new. It consists of three components, who you are, who you know, and what you've done. In a sense, this is personal brand building that is seen in the best innovators in all sizes of organizations. Our guest is Nathan Furr, who also co-authored two other very important books that you might recognize the titles of, The Innovator's DNA and The Innovator's Method. He is a professor of strategy and innovation at INSEAD, which is recognized as one of the top business schools in the world. His PhD is from Stanford University, and in addition to studying how companies innovate, he also helps each year to create the Forbes list of the world's most innovative leaders and most innovative companies. For everyday innovators on the path to being a product master, this may very well be one of the most important discussions that you need to hear, and I really hope you enjoy it and find it valuable. Also, remember, I take notes for you. Along with the discussion, if you hear something that you want to look into more later, just go check out the notes. You'll find those at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 234. Now, let's talk innovation capital. Nathan, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. So you have the great joy, at least for me, it would be the great joy of studying the world's most innovative companies. And your latest book shares, you know, not really what distinguishes these companies so much, which you've talked about in the past, but what distinguishes effective innovation leaders. Tell us the background here. How did this book come about? Yeah. So, Chad, a lot of my work has been about innovation. Where do ideas come from? What's the process to test out your ideas? If you're in an established company, how do you change your culture and create the structures that allow innovation to happen? But along the way, we discovered that we were missing this really critical ingredient, which is how do you win the support, maybe the resources, maybe it's the employees, maybe it's just the permission to do something new in the first place. And that really came out to us very clearly when we, for example, we looked at Thomas Edison and Nikolai Tesla. They were contemporaries. In fact, Tesla worked for Edison. And they were both these incredible idea generators. I mean, in fact, you could argue that Tesla was actually more brilliant than Thomas Edison. Tesla could do 
this you know integral calculus in his head. He came up with these really you know revolutionary ideas that have have changed the modern world, like you know uh, wireless communication and and and, and just so many. You know, you know, electric motors, uh-huh. electrical distribution, uh, all these uh, you know, fundamental technologies that change our modern world. And yet he died penniless and unknown. I mean, we know him today because of Tesla electric motors, but but he was unknown. Whereas Edison died rich and famous and, and with a reputation as an innovator. And we're like, wow, what a difference. Both brilliant, both great ideas, but fundamentally different outcomes. And it's because... Edison was really good at winning backing for his ideas, and, uh-huh. and Tesla really struggled to do that. And so they had fundamentally different outcomes. So we, were, we, we really wanted to understand this kind of what we saw as the other side of the innovation coin, which is how do you win the support for your ideas? Yeah, and we need that support for an idea to go anywhere. The old phrase that ideas are a dime a dozen, it's the execution that makes all the difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. So that's a good background. And I love the Tesla Edison thing. I had visited Niagara Falls last summer and dove in a little bit to Tesla and Edison, looking in the backgrounds and have had some podcast episodes on that as well. Oh, cool. And the difference there is really interesting, right? Edison was much more of a master of marketing and kind of this envisioning the future and stating things as if they were before they were, and then trying to do the work mm-hmm. to make it happen, right? Yeah. We saw it very clearly in the contrast to those, between those two, but the spark was really a conversation we had with Mark Benioff, who's the mm. founder and CEO of Salesforce.com. And now Salesforce.com has been near the top or at the top of our list, Forbes list of the world's most innovative companies for years. And Mark Benioff is the founder. I mean, nobody has more influence more credibility than Mark Benioff. And yet he said to us, he said, my ability to generate innovations for Salesforce has basically built up over time. He said, over 14 years, I've built up what we might call innovation capital that I can spend to try new things, to change the organization, change the products, change what needs to be changed. And it just, it blew us away because we're like, oh my gosh, if somebody who is innovative and prominent and credible as that, thinks about how do I build up my ability to innovate and change things and do new things? Something's going on here. We need to understand. And so that was really the spark that we had. We'd missed something in a big way. And then, of course, we looked at that contrast between Thomas Edison and Nikolai Tesla. Then it became very clear, two brilliant people totally different outcomes. What does it come, to, come down to? It comes down to this thing, innovation capital. Huh. Yeah. And many other leaders that you've looked at too, and some talk about in the book. So let, let's talk about what is that innovation capital? What do we mean by that? Yeah. So innovation capital is not a tangible thing like financial capital, you know, money in your pocket or something like that. It's an intangible thing that you build up over time. You can build it, you can use it, you can lose it. And it, uh, it, facilitates your winning support backing for ideas and change. And to understand what innovation capital is, we actually did two things. We went deep into the academic research because actually the academic research has something very significant to say about this. There are very deep research bases, but but they're siloed. So nobody's talked about innovation capital specifically, but they've talked about the 
the components or the contributors to innovation capital. Uh So what we did is we went deep into this research and we synthesized it. That was number one. And number two, we created a way to score people on the level of their innovation capital. And we identified the top 100 leaders in terms of those with the most innovation capital. And we went out and we interviewed those leaders. And then, to be honest with you, number three, we felt like it wasn't quite representative to only interview outliers like a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk. We also needed to understand how more representative innovators, you know, people uh-huh. like me and you and, and, and those who are listening, who may not, you know, be written about in the Wall Street Journal all the time, but we have ideas. How do we win the resources and support to do new things? And so we really brought together those three bases to understand what innovation capital is. And what we came up with, it really comes from four things. It comes from, said in maybe simple terms, who you are, who you know, what you've done, and then the things, the actions you take, what we call the impression amplifiers you use to get attention for your ideas. Now, that, that sounds really simple when I say it that way, but it's actually based on your human capital, your social capital, your reputation capital, and then this academic literature on symbolic management and impression management. So it really has these deep foundations, but when we say it that way, it can come off as uh-huh. a, a little oversimplified, even though there's actually a lot of meat there. Yeah, I really like the framing of those questions to talk about what we need to get people to embrace our ideas. And like I said, you talk about in terms of human capital, social capital, reputation capital, but those questions, who you are, who you know, what you've done, that really embodies that I think makes much more actionable. And in my mind, it's a little bit of a different tangent, maybe because I'm thinking about the product managers listening. The subtitle of your book is How to Compete and Win Like the World's Most Innovative Leaders. I love that, right? Great marketing title, very Mm -hmm. aspirational. How can we do this too? (laughs) But I think of it a little bit more in the terms of how can everyday innovators work on those aspects of who you are, who you know, and what what you've done to become kind of that go-to innovation person. The people that everyone else thinks about in their organization about, oh, yeah, you know, Rob, Sue, they're the ones that can really help us with that because they're just known for innovation. Fair enough, right? Yeah. You know what? I totally agree with you. And it's one of these interesting dances when you write a book between your editor and the title they want that, like, they think is going to sell a lot of books, let's be honest. And, like, what would be most descriptive? And I think you hit the nail on the head. If I could put a subtitle on it, it would really be how to build your ability to win the support for your ideas. And and I really think for me personally, one of my motivations in writing it is, listen, I, I have a lot of ideas too. I didn't start out like being somebody that, you know, people listen to my ideas and all that. I had to build that up over time. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are creative, who are, like you said, product developers, product managers, creatives, all these. And, and you kind of, can fall back into this trap of thinking the best idea wins. And I'm an idealist. I want the best idea to win, but I also recognize as I look out at the world, the best idea doesn't actually always win. It has to be, you know, a good idea has to be paired with this other thing, which Uh is your innovation capital winning support for your ideas. And so even for me, it's a little bit of a reality check, you know, that gosh, because, because, you know, here's the thing. Nobody, almost nobody, I mean, you probably find an exception, but almost nobody is born with innovation capital. Most of us have to build it. And let, let's dive in. Let's talk about how we do that. Yeah. Let's start with your first who question there. Who are you? 
Yeah. That seems like one of the most paradoxical, right? Like, how do I change who I am? I mean, but, but what we really wanted to focus on in this book are what are the things you can do? And when we talk about, you know, who are you? That's one of the sources of innovation capital. We drew on the human capital literature and we looked at what are the human capital characteristics that contribute to your ability to win backing for your ideas? What are the top things? And, and as we looked out in our, you know, the interviews we did and, and at the literature, what we found is really you know, four top things that were associated with people who won backing for their ideas. Number one, they tended to be forward thinking. So I think, and, and, and you know, another way to say this is Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, talked about this as, you know, engaging in mental time travel, which mm-hmm. is actually something you can like practice. You can, you can, you know, how do I think about where the future is going to be? And Nadella is a great example because, and when he joined Microsoft, he was, you know, pretty undistinguished. I mean, he was a University of Wisconsin CS graduate, computer science graduate. So not, you know, Stanford or MIT. You know, he joined, he's one of thousands of people that joined Microsoft. How does he set himself apart? And what he said is he engaged in his mental time travel to say, you know, what's going to be really critical in the future? And, and he really believed in what we would call today cloud computing and this connected computing. So he joined a very unpopular part of Microsoft at that time, which was the server business, at which, you know, of course, eventually becomes the cloud business. But but he, he kind of endures this period of, of, you know, kind of being in the not sexy part of the business because he believes that's where the future is going to be. He builds towards that future. And even when he rises through the ranks and Steve Ballmer was CEO at the time, gives him the opportunity to learn to lead that server business. Balmer warns him, like, he said, listen, you should think twice about this. He said, this might be your last job at Microsoft, because if you fail, there is no parachute. You may just crash with it. I mean, that's pretty, pretty terrifying. Right? Yeah. But, but again, he was really committed to this, you know, to being forward thinking. So number one, forward thinking. Number two, try to become, think about how do I become a more proactive problem solver? So one of the characteristics that just blew us away about Bezos is the guy is just obsessively a problem solver and, and trying to tackle things. And he talks about how he learned that growing up, visiting, for example, his grandfather in the summer. And his grandfather would have a broken tractor in the garage and a stack of manuals. He'd be like, fix it, you know? And, and, and that just, that kind of like, if there's a problem, how do I, how do I be proactive about solving it? Number three, obviously, your persuasion and influence skills really matter. And so building your ability to persuade and influence people. And then number four, your creativity. People, you know, you you, you want to be seen as somebody who, who generates new ideas. And, and actually one resource for that is one of the first books we wrote, one the first big innovation project I did called The Innovator's DNA, uh-huh. which was what are the behaviors of innovators who generate new ideas? So again, it can be more than those four things, but those were the top four things we saw that contribute to, and, and the real question is, what contributes to my innovation-specific human capital? Uh-huh. And the key point there is we can get better at all of those things, right? Becoming more forward-thinking, dive into problems, try to figure out how to solve problems, grow our influence, our ability to persuade others. And all of us are wired with creativity. And if we need more tips, mm-hmm. we can go look at innovators' DNA for what are those behaviors of innovators. Great. So we can develop our human capital, who we actually are. We're on our path to more innovation capital here. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. 
We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Next, you talked about who we know. Yeah, which is kind of, that's another one that can seem kind of obvious, like, oh, of course, who you know. But but there's actually uh, some some interesting insights from this. So who we know is really what we want to think about is what are our connections to other innovators and entrepreneurs, um, other leaders? And, and by that, think about if you're in an organizational context, what's your connection to the leaders who you need to know? to investors or others who can help you out, and then lastly, to influencers. Mm -hmm. Now, many of us take that as kind of like a fixed thing, and we only pay attention to what we, in my nerdy academic world, call a strong tie. That is somebody we know really well. But there's a couple wrinkles to this whole story. Number one is that strong ties and weak ties both matter a great deal. What do I mean by weak tie? That's like the friend of a friend or the friend oh. of a friend of a friend. And one of the big insights that the academics you know, world gave uh, was the strength of weak ties. So when I, I did my PhD at Stanford, and I, one of the guys I studied with, was, his name was Mark Granovetter, and he became very famous for this idea of the strength of weak ties. And it came from a study he did, and he tried to understand how do people get jobs? And, and everybody assumed that you got jobs because you knew somebody really well. And so they were willing to vouch for you and, and, you know, kind of connect you. But he went out and he actually just talked to people in the city of Boston and like tried to understand what happened. What he found is most of the way people got jobs was from weak ties, people they didn't know that well. And, you know, it's kind of funny because if we look under some of our most famous stories, like say Facebook, you know, and uh, that, that is kind of a story of weak ties. I mean, the idea for we, uh, for Facebook comes from like a network of, of weak ties. So you could say, you know, the Winklevoss twins were involved, um, Divya Narenda, who's from Connect You, Aaron Greenspan, all these people that Zuckerberg kind of knew, and the funding comes from weak ties. So he kind of bumps, you know, he kind of connects to the Sean Parker guy who introduces him to Reed Hoffman and uh-huh. Hoffman introduces him to Peter Thiel. And and then the technical talent comes from, from weak ties. So some of the key players in that whole, uh, you know, it, that built the initial Facebook came from people that Zuckerberg didn't know them really well. They were friends of a friend of a friend. And, and so it's that thinking about, okay, who do I need to connect to? 
and then being really proactive about that. And one of my favorite stories we studied was a guy, David Bradford. And the guy talks about how, you know, when he you know, kind of graduated from high school, he grew up in a small town in Montana. He went, you know, got you know, trained as a lawyer and he went out in the legal world. He said, listen, I had absolutely zero connections. I was the least connected guy in the universe. Now, that was when he started. Today, he knows, you know, Eric Smith, you know, the former CEO of Google, Scott McNeely, the CEO of Sun Microsoft, Sun, uh, Steve Wozniak, you know, co-founder of, of uh-huh. Apple. And in fact, because he got to know Wozniak, he actually brought Wozniak in as the chief science officer of one of his companies, Fusion.io, which they then took public for like $2 billion. But, he's, but he said, all, all I did, he said, was to really consciously and proactively build my network and over time turn weak ties with people I knew in you know strong ties with people I knew into ties with people who could help me. And he's and he's not disingenuous about it. He's not a jerk. I mean, he does it in, in a in a genuine way by offering to help you. Right. But but again, the whole message, how do you think about building your that that network to the right people? Yeah. And inside an organization we need that network to be successful as our careers progress, too. A uh, good example that just came to my mind as you were talking about that, right now I have the great pleasure of training all the product managers at an engineering company that I kind of grew up with, right? They were a company that I would have been glad to go work for as an engineer. And so it's a real treat to me at this stage in life to be able to train all their product managers. And one of the things that has come up this last week with them, we do this on a weekly basis, is they have a dedicated innovation group. And the product managers are kind of caught up in the day-to-day grind of what they're doing. They're getting a little bit disconnected with what is the new thing that's coming. I said, you guys got to leverage these resources. Here's what you got to get done this week. All of you, take someone to lunch from that group and just ask them the question, what do you guys do? What what do you do? Tell me about your job. You need to be building those relationships. Good example? Or even better. Yeah, even yeah, absolutely. Even better, grab coffee. Yeah, right. You know, one of the... One of the most, because it's a smaller cost to you, yeah, right. smaller cost to, them, cost to them, but one of the biggest things that, okay, so I have many organizational behavior colleagues who I love, they're good friends. One of the things that always just shocks me is they can stand up in front of a room of seasoned executives and tell them there's the formal organizational structure in your organization. And then there's these informal networks and how things really get done is often through these informal networks and people they're just like oh yeah wow and i mean we have so many stories of that like you know stories of organizations where like the people who sat near the bathroom were the most powerful because they saw like everybody like where they were Mm. moving and they talked to them and knew them and and it's just one of these basic things we forget about And, and yet informal networks are so critical so you're absolutely right that's great. I appreciate you emphasizing that too. And just pay attention to the people around you and make use of those weak ties, how you can get introduced. Anything under else under who we should know? No, I mean, the big thing is you really got to think about evolving your social network. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really something you can do. And that's why I like the David Bradford story is he starts out with no weak or strong ties to, because what I emphasize is it's not just knowing people, it's your ties to innovators and entrepreneurs to the People in your organization who you need to know to get things done or to learn from. I mean, you know, my earlier work on where do ideas come from, one of the most powerful things is it comes from 
getting to know networking with people who aren't like you. So getting to know those idea generators, networking with them, networking with investors, networking with influencers. And what David Bradford is, he just evolved his network over time, consciously, thoughtfully, and genuinely. And now he's he's, I mean, the guy can do anything. He can get Steve Wozniak in his company. I can't do that. That's that's just thinking amazing. So, you know, from a guy who is the least connected guy in the universe. So mm-hmm. we can we can change these things. That's really good. And if you go back and practice a little more forward thinking, you may very well do that in a few years. You know, could, yeah, could happen. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and this next one, what we are known for, you know, what do people think of mm-hmm. when they think of you? I think is so very powerful. I think a lot of us don't give enough attention to our personal brand inside the organization we're working for. So walk us through elements of what we're known for. Yeah. You know, there was uh, absolutely critical. In fact, I remember, um, uh, so my, my co-author when he was at Wharton, Joseph Bauer, who was this very famous professor at Harvard Business School, came through. And he told about this study he did. And it was about which projects get funded inside of big companies. And, mm-hmm. and it was it the projects with the the highest payoff or the most visible or, you know, the most, you know, who is tied to the CEO. It wasn't those things. It was the projects led by people who were respected, who had a reputation for delivering. And, and, you know, it's this really, you know, critical thing. What's our personal brand? What are we known for? And there's a whole literature on reputation capital, but when it comes to winning backing for your ideas, we found a few things that really could up your ability to win support for ideas. Um, number one, become a founder. Number two, take on visible hard projects. Number three, show an ability to be good at prioritizing what's important. And number four, be scrappy. And, and if I could, I just want to drill uh-huh. down on a few of those because one of them, I mean, again, over and over we saw having a reputation for somebody who started something, becoming a founder is really critical, but but that can be kind of discouraging because, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but most of us aren't exactly comfortable with the idea of quitting our job. We've got families, we've got, you know, you know things yep. we have to do, uh, commitments. And, and so, oh, wait, you're telling me to start, quit my job and become, become a startup founder? No, no, no. Because there's lots of ways to become a founder, lots of ways. There are you can do a side project. In fact, the research shows that you know we call them hybrid hybrid entrepreneurs in in my nerdy world, which is you keep your job but you do a side project. Uh-huh. Those are the entrepreneurs who tend to be most successful. You can lead an internal project. So so like your podcast would be a great example of, uh-huh. of a fabulous side project you have built innovation capital because you're a founder. You've done something, uh, Chad. And so this is this is the kind of thing we mean and and and. You can do it in small ways. You can do it uh-huh. in big ways. And, and one of the big ways that was kind of inspiring was uh, was um, was uh, Andrew Jassy, who is now CEO of Amazon uh, Web Services, so AWS. And at the time, what why I liked is because at the time Andrew Jassy had a really good job. So he was working at Amazon. He was Jeff Bezos's assistant in the sense, not really like scheduling his flights, but more like more strategic, more really kind of being an extender. Uh-huh. So really had the ear of Jeff Bezos. He attends an offsite at Jeff Bezos' house. 
where they're talking about what are Amazon's core capabilities. And of course, oh, comes up and e-commerce and the obvious things. But they, as Bezos really pushes the team into the non-obvious, start to talk about, well, you know, it, it's really actually pretty technically complex to host data services, host a website, and, and because nobody's really built the backbone of the internet, the operating system of the internet. What if, what if other companies like us struggle with it? And what if we could, we could build the operating system for the internet? And, and, and the way it works at Amazon is they don't go invest, you know, $50 million in that right away. They have a process like we wrote about in the innovators method to test ideas. And they, what it is, you write a little internal memo and then you go out and test with customers. But long, the point of the story is Jesse, who has this, you know, really great job raises his hand and says, Oh, I'll, I'll be a part of that. And, and, you know, he has, he's CEO of Amazon Web Services today because he was willing to take that little risk. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, so number one was become a founder, but it doesn't have to be quitting your job and starting a company. Get involved in a project, be a part of an initiative, propose something and lead it. Number two, leading visible and challenging product, projects. So Indra Nui, who was a CEO of Pepsi for many, many years until just recently, we, we interviewed her and she just, emphasized that over and over. She said, you know, I always raise my hand for the hardest projects. Uh. And that was important because they were often the more visible ones. And when I when I did that, when I did it well, people looked at you with a newfound respect. And then uh, in addition to that, um, we saw innovative leaders, people who are good at kind of saying, you know, this is the right thing to do. Let's focus on that. Um, who are good at strategic prioritization. Those people were built up a strong reputation in the organization. And then lastly, people were scrappy who have, meaning they've done a lot with a little. Uh-huh. And, and I remember one of the, one of the uh, investors we interviewed, uh, Gavin Christensen, he runs this you know, very innovative seed fund, actually in the Rocky Mountain region. Um, and uh, he said, listen, the thing that really impressed me, impresses me as, a, as an investor, is somebody who's made fire, even just smoke with very little kindling. You know, somebody who's really scrappy, I know if I give them more, they'll do a lot of good with that. Huh. So again, you you can you can build these things. You can you can be, you can lead a project, you can you can raise your hand for a hard project, you can get better strategic prioritization, and then you can try to be scrappy, do a lot with a little. People respect you for that. That's really good. And taking on those hard projects, sometimes we're, we're reluctant to do that because we realize the stakes are higher, things are more visible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, everyone else is looking around going, man, I'm not going to do that because the risk is really high. Yeah. And the person that does raise yeah. their hand, they're given a lot of extra grace because everyone else recognizes they're moving into something that is difficult. Yeah. And, you know, let me give you a little more advice about that uh-huh. on that hard project. Number one, don't promise huge results like in a really short period uh-huh. of time. Like, you know, just promise to like give it a good, honest, hard look and a great effort. So uh, often in big companies, uh, we want to like... I call it, um, you, you go out vision first, and that's always really dangerous. You want to go data and results first, vision second. So yeah. play a low profile on it. Raise your hand. Play a low, 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 low profile. Be really honest. I mean, be transparent. I, I, I used to sit on a seed fund and uh, invested in early stage companies. I remember this one entrepreneur who we all loved. I mean, 
we would have given that guy however much money he wanted because he was so transparent and honest about what was working, what wasn't working, what he was going to use the money for. And so, so be, be transparent and honest. Here are the challenges. Here's what we're going to try to do to address it. We're going to do our best instead of like the, the big mistake would be promised big results, hide that things aren't going well for a long time and then have it blow up. I mean, that's, that's Uh by contrast, a recipe to lose reputation. That's really good advice and good advice for helping us to make it not feel like we're putting ourselves out there too far into the zone of risk and potential failure. Appreciate you sharing that with us. There's lots of good actionable information that, that you've taken us through about, you know, those three basic questions, who we are, right? What can Mm -hmm. we do to really build up our own capabilities in the area of innovation, who we know. Mm -hmm. So taking advantage of those strong ties and weak ties. And then this personal brand issue of what we're known for and how we can really raise our visibility in the organization or the network we're in right now. Great information. Love that you took us through that. More details, certainly, in Innovation Capital, your book. Mm-hmm. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. I always ask a guest for an innovation mm-hmm. quote. Do you have one for us? Yeah. You know what I would say I think is really critical? We live in this world of you know, uh, test and learn, uh, be really customer focused, solve a customer problem. All of those pieces of advice are absolutely right. I respect them a lot. But, but I often like to say, don't forget that entrepreneurs innovate, customers validate. Uh. Don't ask your customer to innovate for you. You as the entrepreneur, you as the innovator, yeah, you look at what problems customers are struggling with. Then you make the imaginative leap to what could be. And then you take that to customers and you get their feedback. You get their reactions to it. And 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 usually if it's a big leap forward, they're like, wow, that's amazing. So I just I just want to, you know, want to remind people of that, that, you know, to to remind them of imagination and the power of that when it is tied to customer validation. Mm-hmm. And I might phrase that then and try this out with you for this audience. Product managers innovate, customers validate. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's the essence of it. Okay. Attributed to Nathan Fur. Thank you very much. <laughs> For every innovators, how can we find out more about the work you're doing? Get our hands on your book, and I'll make sure I put links to everything in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, really, the best place is uh, Amazon.com. I mean, we do have a website uh, about innovation capital. So if you just search innovation capital, it's um, on our website, Innovators DNA. Is it? We, uh, I co-founded a little company that helps organizations develop these capabilities. And I say that not because I'm trying to sell anything at all. I'm only just because that's where we put these resources. And, and, and my role is really to generate more ideas. But, but that's where you can find, actually, we have uh, assessments you can take, tools, you know, so for, so for example, some workshops, uh, sorry, worksheets. And so there's some resources there to help you evaluate your own level of innovation capital, think about what you could do next. So all of that for free, just to try to help people out. Yep. And Innovation DNA, this little company you said that Innovators you, you, DNA. You, Innovators, yeah. Innovators DNA. DNA. Thank you. Yeah. Little company you co founded with names many of us would recognize, like Christian Clayton and Jeff Dyer. And yeah. You guys are doing some good things. So appreciate all that. Appreciate the book. And thanks for taking time to share those insights with us. 
It was a lot of fun for me, so thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it, Nathan. And, and for listeners, this is a Friday evening for him, and it was very nice of you to do that. So thanks again, Nathan. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create those products that customers love. And if you've been enjoying this resource, please tell your colleagues about it. I want to help everyone who's in product management, who's a product leader, kind of get skilled up, have more influence, and create more amazing products and greater value for customers, for the organization, and for themselves. Once again, you'll find the summary of the discussion we just had at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 234. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.